I have another print disability, which makes reading, holding a book, or turning a page difficult or impossible. The content is copyrighted by the respective publishers. For more information, please visit us on the web at nfradioreading.org. Hello, this is Patricia, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Journal for May 17th, front page. Eight Miles of Roadway Will Be Resurfaced This Year by Benjamin Joe. The City of Lockport has released its list of streets to be milled and paved this year. Work is to begin in two weeks. To determine which streets to recommend for paving, city staff rated every street visually, according to city engineer Steve Pump. In all, about eight miles of roadway will be resurfaced at an approximate cost of $1.2 million for materials. Labor is extra, Pump said, and the total is covered by State Highway 8. West Avenue, State Route 31, from North Transit Street to Park Avenue on the West City Line, will be resurfaced by the State Department of Transportation beginning in late May. Three rounds of milling and paving are planned. The first round will begin around the end of the month. Included are Walnut Street from Pound Street to Davison Road, Wilson Parkway, Autumn Vale Street from Walnut to Rochester Street, Bobolink Lane, Morton Street, Elmwood Avenue from Washburn to Reed Streets, Ontario Street from Locke to Church Streets, and Bella Alley. Streets in the second round are Akron Street from High Street to Davison Road, Roosevelt Drive from Akron Street to Pennsylvania Avenue, High Point Drive, High Street from Erie to Washbourne Street, Park Place, Lincoln Avenue from Beattie Avenue to Locust Street, and Harding Avenue. Streets in the third round are Park Avenue from Michigan to Heath Streets, Niagara Street from Prospect to South Niagara Streets, Stevens Street from South Bristol Avenue to Prospect Street, Saxton Street from Walnut to Genesee Streets, Bridlewood Drive, Windsor Street from Prospect to Webb Streets, Willow Street from South Transit to Pine Streets, and North Adams Street from Old Niagara Road to Porter slash Butler Street. Any city resident whose streets isn't on the list and believes it should be is asked to contact the city clerk's office. If nobody reports it, we're not always going to know. Mayor Michelle Roman said we need to document it. Advocacy, Team Alice Reaching a Wider Audience. Lockport Woman Has Turned Her Personal Loss into a Positive for Patients Everywhere by Thomas Tedesco. The death of a Lockport woman has been turned into a call for widespread advocacy from one of her closest loved ones. Back in 2011, Mary Brennan Taylor was two years removed from the loss of her mother, Alice Brennan, due to an infection while she was hospitalized. She spoke to the Union Sun and Journal about patient safety, hoping to raise awareness of medical harm in hospitals. There was no Team Alice then, but there is now, and to date it has shared Alice Brennan's story with more than 2,000 medical students at UB, as well as medical groups and agencies across the country. Reflecting on the evolution of Team Alice last week, Brennan Taylor described her mother as a lively woman who found humor in just about everything. Things changed quickly for Alice Brennan in July of 2009 when she was hospitalized for pain and swelling in her leg that was later determined to be a case of gout. She went back and forth between the hospital and rehab for several weeks and her condition worsened as she suffered side effects of various medications prescribed while she was in the hospital including some that were proven to be harmful for elderly patients. She was placed in hospice where she died on August 29, 2009, aged 88. Brennan Taylor began to document everything that had transpired and was invited by the University of Buffalo to do a guest lecture about her mother's story. 
When she gave her first lecture at the UB School of Nursing, it was simply known as the Alice Story. The story resonated so much with the students that they changed their plans for the rest of the semester and began to study Alice Brennan's case, she said. I think that the thing that really resonates with all of the students is that this isn't a made-up case study, Brennan Taylor said. This is a real individual who lived in this community who suffered untold harm because there wasn't an understanding of the harm that medication can do to a senior. This led Brennan Taylor to take a voluntary adjunct position at the school, and she began giving monthly lectures about her mother's story. That's when Team Alice was born. By 2016, Alice Brennan's story became a centralized case that was studied and analyzed by several different departments in UB's Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Learning all of this launched us to this research pathway of really wanting to understand what we can do to help fix the healthcare system, Ranjit Singh, Vice Chair for Research at Jacobs School of Medicine said, and also help patients and their families members to navigate the healthcare system. Brennan Taylor stressed the importance of sharing her mother's story directly with medical students, who she refers to as change agents, helping to solve the issues of medical harm. We've gone from just talking about what we can do to educate to actually talking to people who can initiate change, she said. The Alice story has been featured in several national publications, including USA Today and U.S. News and World Report. On May 18th, Brennan Taylor and Jennifer Stoll, research assistant professor with the UB Department of Family Medicine, shared the story live with a large national audience, approximately 7,000 people attending a virtual conference hosted by the National Council on Aging. Stoll said they'd been hoping to partner with a national organization to reach a wider audience, and the pairing with NCOA was a perfect fit, was a perfect fit. It was an organization with the right mission, the right vision for us, Brennan Taylor said. Brennan Taylor stressed that she does not want her mother's story used to blame medical professionals for errors that are made with medications in hospitals. The focus of Team Alice is on having patients and their families advocate for themselves and their loved ones. I've been real, really careful with how I want the story to be disseminated and not just send it out there and they can use it any way they want. I don't want malpractice attorneys using the Alice story. The biggest thing is empowering patients to speak up to protect themselves from medication harm, Singh said. Though she's not a medical professional, Brennan Taylor said she has learned a lot about how elderly patients often are viewed in medicine. You uncover things that I never even thought about before. I never would have thought about the impact of ageism on healthcare and how that can have a negative impact, she said. The principals of Team Alice hope that through sharing Alice's story and their push for patient advocacy, they will continue to help improve the way elderly patients are treated in hospitals. We want to change the way doctors behave and change the way the healthcare system works so that it doesn't put people in harm's way, Singh said. But in the meantime, that's going to take a long time to fix. For Brennan Taylor, there's personal satisfaction in being a member of Team Alice. Putting a face on the issue has made a difference. This will be her legacy, she said. From the opinions page of the May 17th journal, Josh Holly is Wrong About Manhood by Rob Oaken. Ideas about men and manhood have been evolving for more than 50 years, but Senator Josh Hawley has not gotten the message. Like so many others working to protect white male supremacy, see Carlson, Tucker, McCarthy, Kevin, he's driving a gas-guzzling Cadillac on a road increasingly filled with EVs. Just as women are vigorously resisting returning to a pre-Roe v. Wade America, men aren't going back either. Tone death to shifts in the culture, Holly published a book about men this week, perhaps as a ploy to revive his presidential ambitions. Manhood. 
Finding Purpose in Faith, Family, and Country is a call for American men to stand up and embrace their God-given responsibility as husbands, fathers, and citizens, according to Regency, Holly's far-right publisher. If you want to know what not to embrace in considering American manhood, it's all in the 256 pages of this book. Claiming that our country's all-male founders believe that the U.S. depends on certain masculine virtues ignores the reality of today. There is much to appreciate about men. Still, we'd be much better off if we talked about positive changes, embracing gender equality and rejecting white male supremacy. Calling men out as unemployed whiners and trash-talking women while playing video games and watching pornography misses the mark. Examples of new expressions of masculinity abound, from stay-at-home dads to younger men becoming curious about feminism. Holly's thesis that men are in crisis does have a kernel of truth. There are men floundering, but that is not where the majority of younger men are headed. More and more men are abandoning expressions of masculine culture based on oppressing anyone not white or male. Sure, we still have a ways to go, but support among younger men for women's reproductive rights, for gay and trans rights, for voting rights is on the rise. There are organizations around the country and across the globe promoting gender equality, challenging men's violence, encouraging involved fatherhood, while rejecting men as top dog at home, work, and houses of worship. Danger does exist, just not what Holly is concerned about. It's in young men enamored of gun culture, sucked into social media echo chambers of hate. To see how out of touch Holly is, there's nothing in his book about perpetrators of mass shootings, massacres, primarily young men. Ever since the January 6th committee showed the video of Senator Holly running from the insurrectionist mob, he he'd earlier encouraged with a fist in the air, we've all had a good laugh at his expense, Jonathan Capehart wrote in the Washington Post. Although caricatured as a manhood-obsessed hypocrite, make no mistake, Holly is dangerous precisely because, as Capehart noted, he is selling a vision of masculinity to white America that has much more to do with prejudice than manliness. His message may still resonate with older white men, but younger men, even those who may enjoy watching Ultimate Fighting, are generally tolerant, accepting of their gay and trans co-workers, and are supportive of colleagues who have had an abortion. The future is not white male supremacy, in part because patriarchy is dangerous for men. In a March 31, 1776 letter, Abigail Adams, future first lady to our second president, wrote her husband John urging the Continental Congress to remember women's interests as they prepared to fight for independence for Great Britain. In the new code of laws, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors, adding, do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. There have been pro-feminist men since at least the 18th century. While Abigail Adams may not have mentioned men, they were allies, allies in waiting then and are growing in numbers today. What is different now is that we're stepping forward to say so. Fifty years ago, Josh Hawley may have sold a lot of books. Today, I'm betting they'll be remaindered by the 4th of July. Rob Oaken writes about politics and culture. He is editor-publisher of Voice Mail magazine, chronicling the anti-sexist men's movement for more than three decades. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The journal for May 18th, front page, Catholic Health Addressing Care Gap in, the Lo in Lockport. Health System Commits to Temporary ER Operation at Express Care 
by Benjamin Joe. Catholic Health announced Wednesday that it will operate a temporary freestanding emergency department in Lockport to close the emergency care gap that will exist between Eastern Niagara Hospital's June 17th closing and the fall opening of the new Lockport Memorial Hospital. Emergency medical services, including accommodation of ambulances, will be provided at Eastern Niagara Express Care on South Transit Road, Catholic Health Public Relations Director Joanne Cavanaugh said. That's ENH Urgent Care Facility, which Catholic Health is taking over. This full-service emergency department will be equipped and staffed to treat and stabilize patients throughout the region, Cavanaugh said. Lockport Fire Department Chief Luca Qualgaliano said, Catholic Health's plan comes as a relief to local ambulance transport services, including LFD. Although an emergency room can only stabilize critical patients, not keep them overnight, if it comes down to not having an ER of any type versus having that in place, we'll gladly take it, Guagliano said. And it certainly is a relief to know we're going to have a fully staffed ER with a doctor on scene 24-7 that can help us stabilize critical patients, whereas before we were talking about 20 minutes to the next closest doctor. Responsibility to transport stabilized patients to another hospital won't fall on LFD, Guagliano said, but the department could act as a backup in the event another ambulance company is unable. When ENH announced its closing date back in March, Mayor Michelle Roman appealed to Lockport's state legislators, the state health department, and Governor Kathy Hochul, as well as Catholic Health Administration for help preserving an emergency room operation in Lockport while the new hospital is under construction. ENH's closing day statement referenced other hospital emergency rooms in the area from Medina to Amherst and Niagara Falls, and critics quickly noted that any one of them is at least a 20-minute drive from Lockport. Roman's appeal apparently reached the right ears Kavanaugh said Catholic Health was approached by the State Health Department to develop an emergency services solution to close the gap in care that would result from ENH's closure. Noting the adapted express care facility will be a full-service emergency room, Roman said Wednesday, I'm excited I was able to help spearhead this. Kavanaugh said Catholic Health is still working out some regulatory issues with the State Health Department and an opening date for the temporary ER couldn't be given yet. Catholic Health Administration has been working on a cure gap solution for months, she added. In a written response to Catholic Health's announcement, State Assembly Member Mike Norris, a Republican from Lockport, commended the health system, as well as Hochul and the State Health Department, for their efforts to create a bridge in services locally. I truly appreciate that Catholic Health and the Hochul administration took to heart our concerns and once again answered an important call from our community to protect the safety and health of eastern Niagara County residents, he stated. From the local news page, Seneca Nation OK's school's warrior nickname, Logal. President Salamanca represents the most unique of circumstances by Carolyn Thompson, Associated Press. Leaders of the Seneca Indian Nation will allow a public school district located on their land to continue using its warrior nickname and logo, despite New York's ban on schools' use of indigenous imagery, officials said Wednesday. In giving approval, Seneca Nation President Ricky Armstrong Sr. said the Salamanca School District represented the most unique of circumstances because of its location on the nation's Allegheny Territory and large percentages of Native American students and staff. Last month, the New York Board of Regents prohibited public school districts from using indigenous nicknames and mascots, but included an exception for districts that receive written approval from a federally recognized tribal nation in New York. Salamanca is the only U.S. city built on land leased from a Native American reservation 
and about 38% of students in the public school system are members of the 8,000-member Seneca tribe. Surveys and community forums showed broad support for keeping the existing logo, which was designed by a Seneca artist and depicts the profile of a Native American man with braided hair who is wearing the single feather headdress specific to the Seneca Nation. The regulations recently approved by the New York State Board of Regents and our history of coexistence with Salamanca gave us much to consider, Armstrong wrote in a statement emailed to the Associated Press late on Tuesday. He said he took into account the collaborative relationship between the nation and school district. While the nation reserves our ability to revoke the support at any time, it is our hope that the district will continue to cultivate a culture with which our students can identify, where they feel respected, and where they can excel as students and as individuals, he wrote. Superintendent Mark Beachler said the district was honored to receive the endorsement. Over the next week, the district's Native American curriculum team will be releasing educational resources that will be used to teach the history and meaning of our logo and what it means to be a warrior in Salamanca, he said in a statement. It is our hope these resources will educate and contribute to the eradication of stereotypes and misunderstandings that lead to bias and racism. New York is one of at least 20 states that have taken action or are considering action to address native-themed mascots used by public schools. According to the National Congress of American Indians, which tracks the issue. NEEE starting education program at County Jail. Plan has adjunct faculty teaching general education courses to inmates by Robert Creenan. Niagara County Community College plans on starting an education program for inmates at the Niagara County Jail this summer. General education courses lasting five to seven weeks will be taught at the jail. The main requirement for inmates is that they must have a high school diploma or the equivalent. Orleans Niagara BOCES would administer the placement exams to determine whether inmates are ready for the courses. Course credits would be transferable to other colleges upon the inmates' release. Chief Jail Administrator Anthony Seuss said NCCC's reached out to the sheriff's office about the program, expressing belief that it would benefit the incarcerated population. He did not say how many inmates registered to take classes. The goal of a correction facility is to make individuals better than when they came in, Seuss said. Lydia Olatowski, NCCC Vice President for Academic Affairs, said an adjunct professor from the college agreed to teach the courses. Sheriff Michael Filicetti said the office, his office is still working on technical details so the courses can be offered. I'm one of the first to say we need to hold people accountable for their crimes, but we need to offer programs so that they, we don't see them again in correctional facilities, Filicetti said. Incarcerated students would be eligible for federal Pell Grants and other tuition assistance programs, and they can pay for the courses through their commissary funds, which are used to provide programming to benefit inmates. Various NCCC student fees would be waived for the inmates per the College Board of Trustees approval given this month. A 2018 study reported in the Journal of Experimental Criminology showed that educational programs in prisons and jails reduced recidivism among the students by 28% and increased their chances of employment by 12%. Of New York State's 44 prisons, 36 offer education programs, inclu including Albion, Attica, Wendy, Wyoming, and Collins Correctional Facilities in Western New York. Area colleges, including the University of Buffalo, Erie Community College, Genesee Community College, and Jamestown Community College, are involved with educating inmates in those facilities. The Union Sun and Journal for May 19th, front page. IDA Yahoo, deed dispute goes to court. 
Town Agency sues Data Center over surprise deed restrictions on Clawback Parcel by Benjamin Joe. The Town of Lockport Industrial Development Agency is suing Yahoo Holdings Incorporated over a deed restriction Yahoo has placed on land the agency is buying back from the company. The agency filed suit in the state Supreme Court on May 10th. According to Tom Sai, agency director, Yahoo bought a 17-acre parcel adjacent to its data center property in the town industrial park in September 2014, and its agreement with the IDA included an option for the agency to buy back the land if nothing was built within, on it within seven years. Yahoo Holdings paid $15,000 per acre and was committed in the agreement to sell it back to the IDA for the same price. The town IDA's board of directors voted to exercise its buyback option in November 2021, and in March 2022, Yahoo delivered the deed. However, Sai said, Yahoo had placed restrictions on the deed regarding what could and could not be built on the land, and those restrictions made the land unmarketable. The restrictions essentially barred any use that reasonably could be expected to diminish the airflow or quality of the property, Sai said. While the IDA directors understand the importance of air quality to the data center, less than good quality could interfere with the computer servers. Their lawsuit asserts the agency is entitled to a clean or unrestricted deed. On March 10, 2022, six days after the deed was received from Yahoo, the agency's law firm, Seaman Norris LLP, returned it to Yahoo's counselor, counsel, Barclay Damon LLP, with a letter from attorney Daniel E. Seaman advising the deed with restrictions does not conform to the obligations set forth in the original land sale agreement. The deed does not convey good and marketable title, nor is the conveyance you sent in good faith given the sole purpose of the conveyance was to allow construction by Yahoo or its assigns to construct a project as set forth in the contract. According to Sai, Yahoo owns more than 300,000 square feet in the town industrial park. Its operation is spread out over nine buildings, most of which house computer servers. Lockport is one of the company's three U.S. locations for data centers. Asked whether there's any concern Yahoo could leave the industrial park over the lawsuit, Sai said there is not. We want the deed clean. Their take is that they may have the ability to have restrictions on it, he said. So that will be the question that will be raised as the result of the lawsuit. Lock Tender Mystery Solved, Identity of Number 10 to be Revealed During Lock Tender's Tribute on Saturday by Benjamin Joe. The identity of Lock Tender Number 10, seated on the staircase at the Flight of Five Remnants, will be revealed Saturday during the annual Lock Tender's Tribute. Number 10 is one of 14 real-life late 19th century local characters being immortalized in phases by sculptor Susan Geisler, who used an uncaptioned 1897 photograph by F.B. Clench as her template. While work on the bronze sculptures progressed, a group of Locks Heritage District volunteers formed a hidden figures team to identify the 12 Lock tenders and one child in the Clench photograph and track their descendants. Until recently, the team had been unable to positively identify lock tender number 10. He was the only one still unnamed. So who was he? David Kenyon, LHD chair, says if you want to be among the first to find out, you'll join in the festivities Saturday morning in the Locks Heritage District. At 10 a.m. at Erie Canal Discovery Center, 24 Church Street, the 18th annual Key to the Locks Award will be presented to Charlie Begley, Locks Heritage District docent and Step Back in Time player. After that, a procession to the Locks will commence and flowers will be laid at Lock Tender's Tribute Monument. Locking demonstrations at the restored Flight of Five re remnants will follow. 
in conjunction with the tribute and the opening of the 2023 Erie Canal navigation season today, Lockport Community Farmers Market is returning to Canal Street. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Continuing with the journal for May 19th, the opinions page. Cheers and jeers. Cheer. The Orleans and Niagara Career and Technical Education Centers turned out 30 gold medal winners at the 2023 New York State Skills USA competition meaning 30 local high school students are eligible to attend the National Skills USA competition in Atlanta next month. Seven teams and eight individual students at the centers operated by Orleans Niagara BOCES were judged to be the best in New York State in their contest fields and presumably their future career fields. Animation, engineering, advanced manufacturing, electronics slash electricity, HVAC slash refrigeration, healthcare, heavy and diesel equipment operation, computer technology and cosmetology. Two dozen more O slash N students can left the state contest with silver or bronze medals in those and other fields. Every one of them deserves congratulations as well as encouragement to keep going in their chosen field. Our country needs all of the skilled workers we can get. Cheer. They're back after a lengthy COVID pause and not a moment too soon. The Hot Country Liners Dance Team, which entertains audiences of all ages with its line dance demonstrations, set to a variety of sounds from rock and hip-hop to swing and country western, is out doing public performances again in the spring-summer of 23. The team is smaller after a few years out of the limelight, but its core missions line dancing to express and spread joy while forwarding free will donations to area charities such as veteran organizations and hospice remains intact. After debuting at this week's Lockport Monday night cruise-in, hot country liners are slated to take the stage again at the Apple Blossom Festival in Newfane on Sunday. Then they'll be back in action on June 3rd during the Relay for Life in Niagara Falls. If you happen to catch one of their shows this year, be sure to cheer them on yourself. And if you can swing it, deposit a few bucks with the dance team. That's all about the good. Jeer. Our repeated billing mistakes and a lack of customer service, NYSEG's way to convince the State Public Service Commission that it really truly needs to raise its electric and gas delivery rates in part so we can afford to hire people to get the bills right and also help customers figure out why the hell theirs is so high this month. If so, the Public Service Commission should say, shut up. While entertaining the utilities request, the PSC has also been busy investigating thousands of complaints against NYSEG's billing practices. Among the complainants is Jack Martin, a commercial property owner in downtown Lockport, whose last two spring quarterly utility bills were about 20 times higher than they should have been. Another is Town of Lockport homeowner Susan Pelloth, whose budget pay plan payment has risen to $550 a month from $350 only a couple months ago due to a $1,400 bill in April that the utility can't or won't explain to her. Both paid their bills under duress, knowing the amounts had to be wrong, but not willing to risk their power being shut off. If those thousands of complainants all overpaid by hundreds or thousands of dollars, like Martin and Pelleth, NYSEG should be drowning in dough to sink into customer service. Even if it's not, there's just no excuse for chronic bad billing and definitely no excuse for threatening customers who question the amounts. The Lockport Union Sun and Journal for May 20th through 21st, front page. Feeling the Holy Spirit through song. Exley Church Choir adds much to the Sunday worship experience by Thomas Tedesco. 
Every rehearsal starts with a prayer. On Wednesday evening, members of the Exley United Methodist Church Choir were rehearsing songs for their worship service on Sunday. Pastor Shelley Andrews said that every time the choir sings, their faith is an essential component. We feel the Holy Spirit through the music that we sing at each service, Andrews said. The Exley Choir currently counts 18 members, and it has been a staple at the church for many years. Our choir is a ministry within itself, Andrews said. She and other members said that the opportunities to sing with a church choir are far and few between these days due to declining attendance and a shortage of music personnel in local churches. Choir director Joe Bresca said that members of Exley Church feel very fortunate to still have a larger, a large choir involved in worship services. Exley has a gift, a gift, Bresca said. Member Bob McFarlane said Exley's choir was what drew him into the church when he first started attending services 18 years ago. At Wednesday's rehearsal, McFarlane pointed to a pew in the back corner of the church where he sat the first time he attended a service and recalled hearing the choir for the first time. After speaking with members of the choir, he decided to join Exley and has been a choir member ever since. Andrews noted that the choir's impact on worship at Exley isn't lost on other members of the congregation. It adds immensely to the service, and several members of the congregation speak to that, she said. When the choir sings, Bresca said, the performance has much more meaning for the singers than a typical musical performance. We're not here to perform, he said. We interpret the songs, take the words, and deliver them to the congregation in a welcoming way. While the choir is a tight-knit group, Andrews said they welcome individuals of all backgrounds and experience levels to join them. They're a fun choir. They'll welcome you and you'll feel their enthusiasm, she said. They enjoy it and we welcome anybody to join the choir. From the features section of the May 20th to 21st journal, The Bond House's Other Owners, Niagara Discoveries by Anne-Marie Linenberry. Last week, Niagara Discoveries looked in on the early history of the Colonel William Bond House at 143 Ontario Street, Lockport. William and Nancy Ralston Bond had married in 1802 and divorced in 1823, just as Bond was starting to build this house in Lockport, where Nancy Bond and the children lived in the 1820s or after the couple remarried in 1831, it's unclear. What is known is that in 1831, Bond lost his Ontario Street home due to bankruptcy, and it was bought or somehow acquired by his brother-in-law, Jesse Holley. Jesse Holley was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut in 1773 and moved to Canandaigua in 1796, where he worked in the land office of Phelps and Gorham. He was already starting to consider the advantages of building an inland navigation system when he wrote to President Thomas Jefferson in 1803 with his idea for establishing new settlements while assisting older ones as well as the needs for internal improvements. By 1805, Holly was working as a flour and wheat merchant in Geneva. That business failed in 1806 and his business partner absconded with the company's assets. Holly was arrested and bailed out, and then he fled to Pennsylvania. While he was there, he wrote his first letter under an assumed name, advocating for a canal to be built across New York State to facilitate transportation of goods between East and West. In 1807, Holly returned to New York State to face his sentence. He spent 20 months in debtor's prison and wrote 14 letters advocating for a canal under the name Hercules. The letters caught the attention of officials in Albany, and a canal commission was formed to explore the idea. The War of 1812 interrupted plans, but they resumed again in 1816, and the canal was started in 1817 in Rome. That same year, Holly was appointed collector at the port of the Genesee River on Lake Ontario, and was later elected from Monroe County to serve one term in the New York State Assembly in 1821. 
A year later, he won election as the first supervisor of the town of Gates. In 1813, Holly had married Elizabeth Betsy Ralston, a sister to Nancy Ralston. Holly came to Lockport with William Bond and his brother as speculators in 1821. It appears that Holly was splitting his time between Niagara and Monroe counties in the 1820s. When the Erie Canal officially opened in 1825, Holly was on the lead boat. The Seneca chief, as a representative of Monroe rather than Niagara County. Five years later, on the 1830 U.S. Census, he is still living in Gates. It may have been after he acquired the Bond House in 1831 that Holly made Lockport his permanent home. He and Elizabeth had divorced in 1830, and he remarried, this time to Elizabeth Brown, in 1837. The year before, he had become treasurer of the village of Lockport. It was also about this time that Holly sold the brick house on Ontario Street. Holly died while visiting a friend in Cambria on January 10, 1842, at the age of 68, and was buried in Cold Spring Cemetery. His second wife died in Canada in 1872. A burial location could not be found for the first Mrs. Holly. A child, Julia, age 11, who died in June of 1842, is also listed on Holly's obelisk. It is uncertain who she was. If she was indeed Holly's daughter, his first wife would have been about 60 when she was born, and his second wife about 43. She may have been adopted or the child or grandchild of a relative. In 1835, Holly sold the Bond House at 25 Ontario Street, the original address, to the Prudence, who came to Locksport from Orange, Connecticut, via the Erie Canal. At the time of their arrival, Peter and Charity Davis Pruden had eight children, seven sons and one daughter, ranging in age from 19 to an infant boy born earlier that year. Peter Pruden had owned a farm in Connecticut, but his occupation in Lockport is unclear. The 1851 map of the village of Lockport shows that P. Pruden also owned property with structures on it at the northwest corner of Ontario and Church Streets. Their neighbors included Ralston's, Keeps, Chase's, and a bond. The Prudence and several of their children occupied the house until the 1870s when Charity died in 1872 and Peter in 1875. Following their deaths, it appears the family rented the property until the early 1880s when it was sold. Over the next 30-plus years, the house was owned but not occupied by two different people, including a Ralston relative. In 1914, it was purchased by Fred and Kate Chase Seymour. Mrs. Seymour was born Catherine Chase Ralston in Buffalo on March 1, 1862. Her parents were Robert S. and Cordelia Metcalf Ralston. Her mother was the granddaughter of Colonel William Bond, and her father was related to the family of her grandmother, Nancy Ralston. Kate's mother died before her second birthday, and she was sent to live with her aunt, Mary Eliza Metcalf Chafe, and uncle, Edward I. Chase, at their home on High Street, most recently the former Lockport Presbyterian home. Kate attended the Union School and a private girls' school. In 1879, Kate married Eugene Ringenberg at her aunt's house. Two daughters, Florence and Catherine, were born, but the marriage did not last. She returned to her aunt's home with her daughters and began teaching at the Vine Street School. Five years later, Kate married Frederick Seymour and lived at 77 Ontario Street until 1914, when the Seymours purchased the brick home at 143 Ontario Street. Fred Seymour died in 1921, and Kate had the home divided into three apartments, occupying one and renting out the other two. In 1926, a young man named Erdman MacDonald moved into one of the apartments and lived there for the next 42 years. He became something of a son to Kate Seymour, 
and when she died on March 7, 1955, at the age of 93, she left the house to him rather than to her daughters. When he passed away in 1968, the Niagara County Historical Society bought the house and restored it to the mid-19th century period. The house was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1995. It is now open to the public on a limited basis as the Colonel William Bond House. Anne-Marie Lindenberry is the Assistant Director of the History Center of Niagara. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Sun and Union Sun and Journal for May 23rd. Front page. Town awarded solar funds. Some are set to use money on legal engineering fees in relation to 125 MW array at former coal power plant by Benjamin Joe. The town of Somerset has been awarded $93,750 to help with attorney and engineering costs associated with a 125-megawatt solar array. Administrative Law Judges Henry Joseph and John Favreau awarded the funds, according to a state document from the New York State Office of Renewable Energy citing the town intends to use the funding for legal fees and engineering work as it prepares to negotiate with Somerset Solar LLC over the placement of a 125-megawatt solar array around the former coal plant power plant. Town officials said they needed the funds to defray the costs of hiring Lippis Matthias LLP as attorneys and Wendell as an engineering firm and asked for $97,550 with $57,550 going to the law firm and $40,000 going to Wendell. ORES requires that the company proposing a solar array deposit $1,000 per megawatt for local agency funding, according to Nathan Stone, an assistant public information officer for ORES. An email stated 75%, $93,750, goes to local agencies and is dispersed as fouls. The town gets $55,650 and the remaining $38,100 goes to the engineering firm that conducts the study. The remaining 25%, $31,250, is reserved for local community groups and can be dispersed at the ALJ's discretion. Law duties would entail advising the town on 94-C statute and regulations, which is the process by which proposed solar arrays and wind turbines are applied for and granted by ORES's executive director, Houghton Moavani, as well as other legal issues. Wendell was hired by Somerset and proposes to conduct a thorough technical review of the application and appropriateness of the proposed studies, particularly regarding compliance with local planning and zoning, according to the document entitled Ruling Awarding Local Agency Account Funds, released on May 12th. Drew Riley, an engineer at Wendell, broke it down simply. Online right now, we are all, are all the studies conducted by the applicant, he said, but they are in a redacted format. The town of Somerset, Wendell, and Lippes Matthias have all signed non-disclosure papers, and in approximately two weeks, that information will be shipped out as a in a non-redacted format. Riley said that the goal of the process for Wendell, as noted, is to make a technical review of all the Somerset Solar's plans and point out where there is an issue that must be resolved. We want to be sure it's done Right, he said. Some of the topics Wendell will look into is drainage. Riley noted that the state recognizes land with solar panels as having less drainage issues than those without it. The reason is because an acre of solar panels also has vegetation which absorbs rainfall. 
Another issue is decommissioning of the project, Rowley said, and finally, whether harmful chemicals are in the solar panels and will they leak out. Of course, PFAs are in everything, rubber, plastics, Rowley said, of the polyfluoronated substances. But will they leak into the waterways? Some companies used to use solar panels with PFAs, and modern makers say they are not but we have to make sure of that. The next milestone, according to Stone, is a review of Somerset Solar's application regarding whether it is in a complete form, which will be done on or before June 6, 2023. ORES then has 60 days to give the company a draft permit following. In another 60 days, a public hearing will be held in person. Somerset Supervisor Jeff Dewart said could not be reached for comment. From the local page of the May 23rd journal, DEC urging New York drivers to give turtles a break. Motorists advised to watch the road crossings on World Turtle Day. In recognition of World Turtle Day today, the State Department of Environmental Conservation is reminding New Yorkers that turtles are in nesting in May and June and asks motorists to give turtles a break. In New York, thousands of turtles are killed each year by unsuspecting drivers when turtles cross roads to find nesting areas. While a turtle's shell provides protection from predators, it does not protect against being struck by vehicles while crossing roadways, DEC Commissioner Basil Sago said. Vehicle strikes are a major cause of mortality among turtles, and New York's native turtles are more susceptible at this time of year as they seek sandy areas or loose soil in which to lay their eggs. Especially in these coming weeks, DEC urges drivers to be on the lookout for turtles and slow down, particularly on roads near rivers and marshy areas. Drivers who see a turtle on the road are encouraged to slow down to avoid hitting it with their vehicle. If the vehicle can safely stop and the driver, drivers are able to safely do so, motorists should consider moving the turtles onto the shoulder on the side of the road in the direction it was facing. Motorists are advised not to pick up turtles by their tails, which will injure the turtle. Most turtles, other than snapping turtles, can be picked up safely by the sides of their shells. Snapping turtles have necks that can reach far back and have a strong bite, so if motorists try to help a snapping turtle, they should pick it up by the rear of the shell, near the tail, using both hands, or slide a car mat under the turtle to drag it safely across the road. Do not drag the turtle by the tail, as doing so can dislocate the tail bones. A licensed wildlife rehabilitator may be able to help if an injured turtle is found. DEC reminds people not to take turtles home. All native turtles are protected by law and cannot be kept without a DEC permit. Most of the 11 species of land turtles that are native to New York are in the decline. Turtles are long-lived species and it takes many years for a turtle to reach maturity. Even losing one mature female can have a negative effect, impact on a local population. Learn more about New York's native turtles at DEC's website. To help turtles and other wildlife, New Yorkers are encouraged to reduce, reuse, recycle, and rethink. These are simple steps to help protect all wildlife. Don't litter. Unwanted trash makes its way just about everywhere, including into our creeks, lakes, and rivers, and the ocean. Don't release balloons or lanterns. Releasing balloons into the environment is potentially fatal for many different wildlife including sea turtles that commonly mistake balloons and plastic bags for prey items like jellyfish. Volunteer for beach and park cleanups. Stay informed and share your knowledge with others. Mystery Lock Tender Identity Revealed on Saturday by Thomas Tedesco. The identity of Lock Tender number 10 seated on the staircase at the Flight of Five Remnants has been revealed. Lock tender number 10 has officially been identified as William Crowley by the Locks Heritage District and was announced at the Lock Tenders Tribute at the Erie Canal Discovery Center on Saturday morning. 
Crowley was one of 14 real-life late 19th century lock tenders that is being immortalized through the creation of bronze statues by sculptor Susan Geisler. The statues are based off of an 1897 photograph by F.B. Clench and are located on the staircase of the locks where the original photograph was taken. Born in 1869, Crowley was one of six children born to James and Margaret Crowley, who were Irish immigrants. He worked as a lock tender for three years between 1896 and 1898, according to the Locks Heritage District. They said there are no records of Crowley ever being married, and he lived most of his life with various family members, including parents and siblings. A group of LHD volunteers formed a hidden figures team to identify all 12 lock tenders and one child in the clench photograph and track their descendants so they could be honored and recognized. All other lock tenders had previously been identified with the exception of Crawley. LHD chair David Kenyon said a team of researchers, including Jeff Degnan, Shelley Richards, and himself were assisted by Geisler in reviewing photographs and documentations to identify Crowley. Kenyon said the verification of his identity was determined by analyzing photos of Crowley's family members, since there are no other confirmed photos of him known to exist. They compared various physical features of Crowley to other family members, including his brother Richard. Geisler determined that Crowley was only about 5'4". He died in 1940. The event also featured the presentation of the 18th annual Keys to the Lock Award. This year's award was presented to Charlie Begley, a retired Lockport School District teacher who is a reenactor with the Niagara History Center's Step Back in Time players and a docent for Locks District Tour. A planned procession to the Locks from the Discovery Center for a ceremony at the Lock Tenders Tribute Monument was canceled due to rain. However, several people braved the weather to place flowers at the statues of the lock tenders, including Mayor Michelle Roman. It's always good to know where you come from and who was there. The identity of lock tender number 10 always felt like a little missing piece, so this puts it all together, Roman said. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal. Your reader has been Patricia. Thank you for listening. County residents call the Erie County Snow Line at 716-858-SNOW for non-life-threatening but serious situations. County employees will answer calls 24-7 during the current blizzard. Callers can leave a message if there is a high call volume. For medical emergencies, call 911. Residents can also send questions to snow at erie.gov.
The following program is intended for listeners who are blind, have low vision, or have another print disability, which 